Hello again and welcome to Arch Eats, where we'll discuss things that maybe you didn't know about the local restaurant scene in St. Louis. I'm George Mahey and with me is Cheryl Bear, renowned local food writer, food lover, food aficionado, dining critic. Did, did I forget anything? I don't know, George. You're making me sound <laughs> yeah, really I know, great you're smiling here. over there. This episode of Arch Eats is sponsored by Westport Plaza. In this episode, we're going to delve into some seasonal subjects such as fresh turkeys, the best places to get them, the best ways to cook them, whether to wet brine or to dry brine. We're going to talk about wine, specifically Missouri wine, with Kat Neville, who may be the state's leading expert on Missouri wines. And we'll also ask her for some holiday wine recs. And then we'll end the segment with what we call a micro rant, something in the food world that drives us crazy and whether anything can be done about it. We'll begin, as we always do, with what I can't stop thinking about. Ladies first, Cheryl, what what you got? Well, I can't believe it, but I was fooled by a vegan biscuits and gravy about a week ago. There is a new place in Maplewood called Looking Meadow Cafe. It's an entirely vegan coffee shop, a lovely place. And they had these biscuits and gravy that were absolutely outstanding. They hit every single note that you want from a biscuits and gravy. They were creamy. They were just infused with a ton of sausage. And I'm telling you, in a blind tasting, I I would have never known. I promise you, they are not good biscuits and gravy for vegan biscuits and gravy. They are some of the best in town. I was That's a heck of an endorsement. Blown away. Fooled carnivore. Fooled carnivore. And I am an avowed carnivore. Uh, takes a lot. I was going to go with something else, but I'm going to play off what you said. And Carnivore George gets fooled a lot as well, but most recently by a product called Harvest Shreds. Now, are you hip to Harvest Shreds at I've, all? I've heard about them a little bit. They're a local it, plant-based it, company, it, it's, right? It's locally made. It's plant-based, high protein, low fat, very healthy for you. And, you know, that my first reaction was that it's craveable. And I told the owner that. He goes, no way. He goes, actually, that's part of our marketing program. That's a big word on our marketing program is craveable. There's three flavors. There's a Korean flavor, a Mexican flavor. Uh, there's a barbecue flavor and a naked, just do whatever you want mm-hmm. with it, blank slate flavor that uh, a lot of the chefs are into. But my favorite use is on a taco salad. And it's the same thing. It's so good and so tasty that you'll just, you won't want to use beef or turkey anymore. It's that tasty. So this stuff is is brand new. It's appeared on some local menus. It's at Grace Meat and Three. It's now appearing at some, on some Mexican menus as taco meat. Some of the chefs in town, those that have tasted it are, are totally into it. I know the guys at, at High Point, you know, the home of wacky specials, they made a vegan Philly cheesesteak that they called the cheese fake. And, no. uh, oh, and yeah, all right, it gets better. At Retreat Gastropub, they do a meatless taco they call the carne asada, N-A-Y asada. No. Okay. No. All right. I, I, These are uh, too cute. I know. I love it. Anyway, the good news is this product is, it's so good. It's revolutionary. It's made here. It tastes great and it fools carnivores. It's, it's unbelievable. The bad news is it's just showing up at retail. The only place I know to get it at retail is it Parker's Table, which I know is a favorite place of yours, and I'm that'll probably be on your next shopping list there. Happiest place on earth, Parker's Table. It, so do they get the texture right? Because that's always my biggest thing is sometimes, you know, they can get it. Th- that's usually where yeah. it, it fails. And this is the texture is really good. It's a frozen product. You shred it in the pan mm-hmm. and you just heat it up. It's there's nothing to cook and, and it keeps in your refrigerator wow. for a long time because it's not 
there's there's no you know animal proteins in it. it it keeps for a while anyway cool stuff look for it harvest shreds that's what i can't stop thinking about ready or not it's holiday season oh my gosh so we appropriately a few weeks you did you wrote a story on fresh turkeys and there was a few things in there that kind of puzzled me and i guess i was expecting something different what was your reaction to that article and then i'll fess up what stood out to me is that um for those who are looking for the fresh really great local turkeys um there seems to be just one you know one act in town and that's buttonwood farm that's what surprised me yeah i think i went through about 10 different places that are serving everywhere from balliards to Smokehouse Market, to Kenrick's, a lot of different places, the butchery, Truffles Butchery. Everyone is getting their birds from Buttonwood Farm, which is a local, out, well, I guess relatively local. They're out of California, right. Missouri. Missouri. And, you know, they're really big on these pasturees, right. humanely treated. This is going to be the best. Think happy birds that, you know, their feathers were fluffed daily and all of that. I mean, and the thing that surprised me about the article was we've done this in years past and there was always heritage birds mentioned. Heritage turkeys, very expensive. Maybe that's why they don't have them anymore. They're three to four times the cost of even these buttonwood birds. But these heritage birds are, uh, you know, raised, you know, like wild turkeys. They're, They're raised in the field and the meat is very, very intense. I think they still exist. It's just you can't get them here anymore that, that I can find this year. So I thought that was kind of curious. But these pasture-raised birds are, uh, you know, they're not heritage breeds, but it's the, it's the next best thing. Because exactly. Because they're fed on uh, in the pasture. Now, <laughs> the question is, what do you do with it? you just throw it in the oven or do you brine it? To brine or not to brine? Do you wet brine or do you dry brine? And I do you do either? So I have always been a wet briner. It just brings out such a more beautiful flavor in the dish. My grandmother didn't brine. My my mom mm-hmm. didn't brine. Mine didn't either. I just started doing this a while back, and it was really because everybody else was brining. I thought, mm-hmm. well, I guess I better start brining. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool. And I did notice it made for a juicier bird. Mm-hmm. Not to go all butterball hotline on everybody, but I did discover a few things about wet versus dry brining that I didn't know. There's, and, and again, I was reading on Bolliard's website. He says brining is recommended and brining is like insurance that you should just do mm-hmm. it. But he says dry brining is the way to go. And he sells a dry brining kit, which is basically a dry rub that has salt and sugar and black pepper and ginger and lemon. Rub the bird inside and out, and then you go about cooking it how you normally would. But that website is really good and his turkey recipe is really good and I highly recommend it. But one thing he doesn't throw in there that I discovered another pro tip is to add some baking powder to his dry brine because it makes for a much crispier skin. Oh, that sounds delicious. So so there's all kinds of things that that I didn't know. And here's the problem with, with a wet brine. The traditional wet brine, which is basically salt, kosher salt and water, sometimes mm-hmm. sugar. Do you put anything else in there? Um, not really, no. It tends to plump up the turkey, but it doesn't do anything to the flavor. Okay. You're okay. just you're just kind of getting more mass and the turkey only absorbs the water and the salt. So if you put any like herbs or doesn't matter. Like that. They really? don't they don't the guy at the uh, Kenji, what's his name? Kenji Alt has proven that none of those flavors get absorbed because the molecules are too big. Again, I'm getting geeky, but 
if you if you wet brine, don't you don't have to throw all that other stuff in because it doesn't make any difference. I feel like I've been doing it wrong. This I know. I see that. That's I I, I thought the same thing. Ah. And and, and it, the other danger with wet brining is you can you know overdo it. You know you can leave it in too long. Mm-hmm. You can waterlog that turkey. It'll get. I have done that. Bad texture. It gets gotten mushy. Yeah. So a lot of folks that are into brining, Mr. Bolliard included, say this is the way to go with a dry brine. And you don't need one of those giant brining bags either. Those wet, you know, that that you put in your refrigerator and hope it doesn't leak all over your refrigerator, right? I'm going to dry brine this year. I don't know. Dry brining. I I feel like I learned something here. So we've we've got it brined. Now you got to cook it. You can roast it. You can bake it. You can... Smoke it. You can grill it. Uh, what do you do to your turkey? Because I have an opinion, of course. Okay, of course. Well, I grew up on non-brined, either way, just roasted turkey. It was dry as hell. Dry as hell, bland, you know, chewy, all of the above. So you would, I think that's why Thanksgiving sides are so popular because it was a way to avoid having to yeah. actually fill yourself on terrible turkey. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I really love smoking turkey. We just have um, just a really simple upright smoker. It's so easy you, to use. You, yeah, you need a smoker yeah, to do that, though. Yeah, and uh, but this one, I mean, it's just a upright Cuisinart cabinet one that I don't think it was that. Oh, oh, it wasn't oh. terribly expensive, but it does fit a turkey. I mean, I don't know if it would fit the most massive turkey you can find, but it fits one. And um, that just... I mean, that's the only way we cook chicken now is smoking chicken in there. And it does the same thing for the turkey. It just gives it such I love to cook turkey flavor. and I smoke it with mesquite. And some people think that's too much of a heavy Oh, no, flavor. I love it. And I, I, I like that, too. Have you ever resorted? I, I read about this every year, frying a turkey. I have never fried one. I appreciate having my garage intact and not burnt down. So I've always That's been a That's usually scared. the story. Yeah, yes. yeah, this guy's got, yeah. Right. Yes, we haven't had an incident where the fire department's been called. Good. But I will say the best turkey I've ever had, and I don't have one of these or else I'd cook everything on there. I had turkey cooked a few years ago on one of those big green eggs. And it was the most delicious turkey I've ever had. That meat was, the texture was perfect, but it was so juicy. It was just the succulent, perfect meat that it was the star of the show. Wow. Over mashed potatoes, over sweet potato casserole. It, I, I couldn't get enough. Yeah, now I need to go buy a big green egg. I'm a traditional guy. I, I roast a turkey, but here's my tip of the day. If you're ever in a pinch for time, because turkeys take hours to cook, you can have the butcher spatchcock your mm-hmm. turkey, which is a name I just love to say, spatchcock. And all that means is butterfly. They just open it yeah. up, splay it out, and uh, it cooks in half the time. So what happens is the, the thighs and the, and the drumsticks, everything's lying flat and everything cooks at the same rate. So oh, nice. the breast meat is cooked at the same time as the as the dark meat, which usually doesn't happen. Uh, the, the only thing, the, the only disadvantage is you don't have that table presentation. Yeah. You know, it's sitting flat on the platter and it's just like, it's just, you know, you're not used to seeing it that way. A flat bird on a platter doesn't look as good as a fat bird on a platter. Right. So, so you have to keep, take that into consideration. But spatchcocking, if you want to save some time, it's just a, a fun way to cook a bird. I think I learned that term from Ina Garden, mm-hmm. Barefoot Contessa. I think she had a spatchcock chicken recipe that's one of her more well, popular ones. What are you it, talking about? You're right. It's a fun thing to say. Yeah. We'll be right back. 
This fall and winter, Westport Plaza is welcoming Soda Fountain Express and 360 Westport. Soda Fountain Express is a spin on a classic diner and burger joint from the 50s and is a great place to host private events, birthday parties, and more. 360 Westport is a modern rooftop bar and lounge featuring cocktails, expansive wine lists, and small plates. Come for a cocktail or dinner with a hand-picked bottle of wine from the sommelier. Follow Westport Plaza on social media at WestportSTL to stay informed about giveaways and upcoming events. Experience the unexpected at Westport Plaza. And now, back to the show. As promised, today we also wanted to talk about Missouri wines, especially since the October issue of St. Louis Magazine, the cover story, was about 75 metro area wineries to visit, which is one of those issues that should stay on the coffee table all year long. We thought it would be interesting to catch up with Kat Neville, who's been a spokesperson and promoter of Missouri wines for a long, long time. In addition to helping launch several local food-based publications and her duties as TV host and producer of the Emmy-nominated TV series called Tastemakers, Kat Neville is president of Communications for Explore St. Louis, which promotes the city both nationally and locally, and you're involved with Missouri Wines as well. You wear a lot of hats, my friend. Yes, I like to stay busy, George. Well, I guess that means there's no one uh, better suited to convince those of us kind of lingering skeptics out here about Missouri wines. And Kat, I have to be honest with you. I mean, maybe I've been to one too many bachelorette parties that involve <laughs> Colby Jack cheese cubes and summer sausage and sweet wine. But I just have this um, this kind of lingering perception that I'm really starting to understand is unfair about Missouri wine just being this like sweet, fruity stuff. The more I'm learning, the more I'm starting to kind of come around and understand that there is some really serious wine out here. So what would you say to that? How do you kind of convince us that this is something to pay attention to? Okay, so first of all, I hear that a lot. And um, and it is something that is this lingering, as you said, mm-hmm. kind of like feeling that maybe the wine is a very high quality. And I think one of the things that we need to put in perspective is the maturity of American winemaking generally. Um, It really didn't restart until the 70s, essentially. And Stonehill and St. James um, are the two wineries that really were the first ones to come back after Prohibition, and they didn't start until the very late 60s. You're not wrong that maybe 15 years ago or so, a lot of the wines were very sweet. Over the past decade, uh, in particular, the quality of the wine and the focus on dry wines has really ramped up. There are a lot of drinkers out there who say, I really want dry wines, but you know what they buy when they go to wineries? They buy sweet wine. And so a lot of these wineries, yes, they still have sweet wines in their portfolios because they sell well. I I really do push back when people say Missouri doesn't make dry wines because there are outstanding dry wines out there. And just anecdotally, I went to London to the um, National Geographic Food Festival with um, my friends over at the Missouri Division of Tourism, and I gave everybody uh, samples of gooey butter cake and Missouri wine. So this is a, a, a group of people who maybe didn't even know what where Missouri was on the map. And so they didn't have any preconceived notions. I had people hugging me and saying that they have to come to Missouri. They love these wines. They're some of the best wines that they've had. Let me take you on an afternoon out to wine country because every winery has something that they do exceptionally well. 
And you'll find that there are excellent, well-made dry wines in the vast majority. There are over 130 wineries in Missouri. So there's there's a lot of wine being made. My understanding was always that, you know, maybe there was something just kind of inherent that the soil is almost like too good. That it was like too fertile. So the grapes don't have to struggle and they don't get complex and all that kind of thing. So where did that come from? Well, I think actually where that's coming from is our German heritage. Okay. So the Germans came into Missouri in the 1830s and they they came to St. Louis and then they hopped on boats and they went down the Missouri River and they founded towns like Augusta and Herman and they brought their winemaking traditions with them. And traditionally, when you're making wine for yourself at home, a lot of times, you know, they would have sugar added to it or they would stop sure. the fermentation when it was still sweet. So these traditional... German wine, the tradition of it uh, was making a sweeter style wine because that's just what people drank. Now, fast forward, obviously, to, you know, the the 80s and the 90s and American wine is just really exploding in California on the West Coast. And and, and the styles there are very dry and, and very complex. And so American wine tastes started changing. And so think about how long it takes to make wine. Like you plant your vines and you don't get fruit for five years. And in order to actually get a vintage of wine, it's more than a year between harvesting the wine and getting something that's been bottled, fermented, all of that. So change happens relatively slowly. So you're not wrong in that there was like a cultural reason why some of these wines were in more of a sweeter style. But I think that that's another reason why we're seeing this evolution toward these more structured and and dry style wines uh, now, because that is what winemakers, they can make with these beautiful hybrid grapes that grow here in Missouri. Um, They want to be making these really high quality wines and drinkers are asking for them now. So, Kat, I was talking the other day to the owner of Wild Sun Winery down in Hillsboro, and he specifically said this is a winery for people that like dry wine echoing exactly what you said. I haven't been to Wild Sun. I want to go to Wild Sun. What are some other wineries that you might recommend, might send some people to in the off season? You know, it's November. A lot of these places aren't open all year long. First of all, there are things happening in vineyards year round. I think we associate going to the wineries in quotes with sunny days, but uh, things are happening at wineries all year round. And so I highly recommend to avoid the bachelorette parties, Cheryl. Um, going, you know, during the winter when you can have fewer people and then you can really kind of chat up the people that are um, at the tasting bar because they are the most knowledgeable folks and can really guide you through the wines. Blumenhof, you know, near Augusta, they make really excellent wines and are very strict with regard to making sure that all of their fruit is estate grown. Highly recommend going there. I feel like I've had some good dry whites there that I yes, feel like. they do a beautiful Saval Blanc. Um, which is a hybrid. So a lot of the grape names that you're going to hear kind of coming out of my mouth are not familiar to most people. Things like Vignol, Saval Blanc, Chamberson, Norton, because they're hybrid grapes that were um, developed so that they were phylloxera resistant, which is that bug that we helped save the entire world from. And then also uh, can survive our climate, which is much more harsh than the European Mediterranean climate. I highly recommend a trip out to Nobleice which is also in the Augusta AVA and very close, like an hour from downtown St. Louis. An amazing lineup of dry wines, um, everything from Norton, which is aged in barrels made from our friends at Fooder Crafters uh, here in the St. Louis area. So they also make some really fun 
like canned sangrias and their wines are actually featured at the um, at the soccer games at City Park, which is pretty cool. Um, Stonehill Winery is a must visit in St. Louis, in, uh, in Missouri wine country there in Herman. They were one of the very first wineries to come back after Prohibition. Originally, the winery was launched in 1847, and it was one of the largest producing wineries in the entire country before Prohibition. They were actually shipping internationally before Prohibition. And so um, now Nathan Held is is working with his parents, and he's the third generation um, behind the winery. They have a, a beautiful, historic 19th century tasting room. They have a great restaurant called The Vintage definitely go there. Tons of great like stick to your ribs, German style food. So perfect for winter. And then also in Herman, Adam Pukta Winery, I highly recommend that you try that. It is the oldest continuously family farmed winery in the entire country. Seven generations. They took a break from commercial winemaking during prohibition for obvious reasons, but they were still producing wine. Um, You could still produce 200 gallons for family consumption. And so now Parker Pukta, his dad passed away last October. Parker Pukta is generation seven. He's in his 30s and he's at the helm now. And so they have wine dinners and they do like private tastings. They have they have an incredible lineup of different wines that they're making. And um, so there are just so many really fun places to explore um, during the winter months. And Chaumette, too. Um, They're very well known for their dry wines and they're down in St. Genevieve area. And they've got the Grapevine Grill, which is a great restaurant. Yes. yes. They won awards for the restaurant. So and that's like if you're you're going out in the wintertime, having a place with a restaurant, I think is important because you're not going to want to sit out with a picnic. I think finding places where you can get some food. It probably also um, is a really good opportunity to showcase how they pair with the food, too. That's what's exciting about it. And there's nothing wrong with Colby Jack cheese cubes. But I think you'll find that a lot of the wineries are really stepping up their game in terms of what kind of food they have available, even if they don't have a kitchen. They'll probably have local um, local meats and local cheeses, you know, things that aren't just, you know, something out of a, the back of a semi-truck. They're, they're really working to emphasize um, local. So we're, we're talking about Missouri wines with Cat Neville, and you're talking about local, and you talked about a bunch of the native grapes in Missouri. But there are some wineries that are importing grapes, such as Cabernet Sauvignon, from the West Coast, from, from out of state, and either blending them with Missouri grapes to create a wine or just producing a wine completely from those grapes. And I guess my question is, can we still call those Missouri wines, even though we're using these out-of-state grapes? So there are two answers. The first one is legally, no, you cannot. Um, So it's made in Missouri. You can't label it as a Missouri wine if it is made with, like as a Missouri wine, quote unquote, if it's made with California grapes. It can be bottled in Missouri, but it's not technically a Missouri wine. From a larger conversation, um, the idea that you're you're bringing in juice or bringing in grapes from out of state and and bottling it, there's a lot of pushback within the industry for that because we do have a very historic, almost 200 years of winemaking history here in Missouri, and we should be celebrating that history. Um, and I do understand. Let let's under let's also nod to the fact that some years are better than others in terms of what's coming out of the vineyard. So. Very often, winemakers are forced to source grapes from other vineyards. There are a number of vineyards in Missouri that aren't wineries that actually grow grapes and then supply winemakers. But yeah, sometimes you do have to source elsewhere. So there are two different answers. And I think that a lot of folks in the industry would say, if, if you want to be a Missouri winery, use local fruit. Um, but then also from a legal standpoint, you can't call it a Missouri wine if it's made with California grapes. 
those Missouri wines that we do make here, those, you know, dry style ones or, you know, maybe even sweeter or semi-sweet. We've been talking about holidays throughout this episode, you know, Thanksgiving mm -hmm. in particular. You know, we're talking about turkey and of course there's all the all the trimmings with it, all the sides, which is probably the best part. Say you were to pair a Thanksgiving feast. What are some some wines that you would serve and kind of just tasting notes and general stuff like what people could expect? And maybe some specific wines if we can, you know, get you to go that far. Number one, sparkling wine pairs with almost everything. And so if you want something that's going to pair all the way through the Brut Reserve, um, they have a there's a blush Brut Reserve and then there's uh, there's a, a Blanc de Blanc from Stonehill Winery. The Blanc de Blanc is actually the preferred wine to serve at State Department events in Washington, wow. D.C. Get yes. out. Wow. It's fantastic wine. So I would highly recommend um, scoring a few bottles of the of the Stonehill Sparkling. Vignol is a very similar grape to Riesling or Gewürztraminer where it has a fruity um, nose and, and it has like really kind of like beautiful tropical fruit on the palate, but it still has good acidity so that it's very balanced and it can be vinified in a number of styles. So it can be completely bone dry. You can have some residual sugar. I personally like a vignole with a tiny bit of residual sugar because I think it really amps up the um, like that juicy quality to it. St. James Winery makes an outstanding vignole. There, there are lots of vignoles across the across the state. Um, Augusta Winery also makes an outstanding vignole that I would highly recommend. Chardonnay is a parent. One of its parents is Chardonnay. So if you're looking for um, something more in that kind of more mild kind of genre, you know, like Chardonnay is more buttery and it, uh, it's a, it doesn't have a lot of that acidity and kind of like tropical fruit going on. Chamet actually makes a really delicious Chardonnay wine that I can highly recommend. And then Chamberson is something that is great in terms of, of a red wine. Um, it makes a beautiful rosé. Edgecliff Winery has a great Chamberson rosé that's dry. And then the Chamberson from Stonehill, the Chamberson from, from St. James, I've mentioned them a couple of times. Also the Chamberson from Defiance Ridge, which is right there um, on the edge of Augusta. And then also Methaney Vineyards, which is a brand new winery. Like they, they've just popped up within the past year or two. And it's a young couple and they're uh, using sustainable farming practices. They're really leaning into kind of like modern um, wine styles. They're, they're new on my radar. And I, I was able to, to drink a, a bottle of their uh, Chamberson. It was outstanding. So um, I would recommend that as well. And then if you're going for a wine that has some punch, if you're looking for something that's more along the lines of like a Zinfandel, our state grape, the Norton, is, is definitely what you want to, to reach for. And, um, and there's Norton, that, there's beautiful Norton made by so many different wineries. And so like Cave Vineyard makes beautiful uh, Norton and Dale Hollow, which is also a relatively new winery by a young couple. They, they do a lot of different wine styles, but their Norton in particular, I think is, is quite good. So there's just so much out there. And I would just recommend kind of, you know, if you see some fun stuff on the shelf, you know, read the label, check to see if it's dry. It'll tell you, the label will tell you what the residual sugar is, um, what the alcohol level is. But, you know, definitely, you know, try to pull a few bottles of, of local wine and, and pair them. I think you'll be really happy. Let's end the holiday meal with a holiday dessert. If you yes. are serving pecan pie or pumpkin pie, yes. what type of wine 
you know, would you finish up with? You know, Missouri has a very, very high end selection of ports. Is that something that you would is that your call for a holiday dessert? Definitely. Um, we make it, it tends to be more ruby style port, uh, but there are lots of great ports and also ice wines. So look for both because, you know, the, the ice wines and there have been a couple of true ice wines that have been able to be made where, you know, you leave your fruit hanging on the vine in hopes that you're going to get a hard freeze. And what happens is the um, the, the fruit is highly concentrated because all, all the ice crystals and then once the once the once the fruit freezes, then it's pressed. And so you get like this really thick, syrupy, um, wonderful juice. And so uh, I know Stonehill has been able to make a couple of true ice wines over the year, years. And George, have you ever had their sherry? No, I have not. I've had their ice wine, though. And the only complaint with ice wine is it's kind of hard to find. They don't make it every year. They can't make it every year. But boy, if you can find that stuff, it's like nectar of the gods. Oh, it really delicious. is tasty. It Absolutely. is delicious. And they actually have a sherry that wins awards every year. You know, you want to find a Norton-based port for sure. There's actually Pirtle Winery over on the western side of the state. Makes a really nice Chamberson-based port. Um, and then find some ice wines made in Missouri. And then definitely track down that Stonehill sherry. You will be so thrilled that you did. I've got a long list. We sure do. We have to go shopping, I for think. sure. So, Kat, is there anything else that we need to know that the listeners might want to know? Any any uh, subject uh, that, that you want to address that is, is essential to this conversation? One thing I want to make sure people know is that uh, the very first American viticultural area ever designated is Augusta. And so before Napa, before Sonoma, the Augusta wine region was designated the very first American ABA in 1980. And I think that that um, really speaks to the history of winemaking here in Missouri, along with the, the really unique climate and, and soils that we have that produce beautiful wines. And it also is a badge of honor for the quality of the wines that we're making. So, you know, so Augusta was the first. Herman is an AVA. There's the Ozark Highlands is an AVA. We have five AVAs in Missouri, but Augusta is number one and it's an hour outside of St. Louis. So you have no excuse. You have to go. Sounds like a good road trip. Always a pleasure talking mm -hmm. to you, catching up with you. Thanks for being part of this podcast. Entirely my pleasure and congrats on the podcast. I'm glad that everybody gets to benefit from your knowledge and your passion. So thank you. So that brings us to the last part of the show. It might be my favorite part of the show that we call the micro rant. One of, one of life's little annoyances. And Cheryl, I know you have one. Cat may have convinced me to try Missouri wine with my turkey dinner. One thing I think anyone will have a hard time convincing me of is green bean casserole. Oh, come on. I know. I loathe green bean casserole. I think it's terrible. I get so upset when everyone thinks that your Thanksgiving feast is nothing without green bean casserole. I do yeah. not get it. You've got grandmothers all over town, like uh, raising their hands and in, in cans of green beans. That oh my gosh. It's the canned green bean. Yeah. It's shreds of mushy canned green beans. It is bringing up my mom when I was little. 
She used to microwave cans of green beans with margarine and black pepper on them, and they were watery, and it was terrible. And every time I think of canned green beans, that is what I think of, and I'm just traumatized. But but with the casserole, you've got the mushroom soup, oh. and you've got the French's fried onions on top. Come happen. on, that, that turns no. it into a gourmet treat, Yeah, it's, it? it's one big <laughs> pile of mush with some crispies on okay. top. All right. Terrible. I, terrible. I, I, I think I have a solution, okay? I remember years ago reading about a recipe from Grace Meeton 3. Mm-hmm. Rick Lewis okay. makes okay. and he does, uh, you know, he does great things. He uses fresh green beans in his green bean casserole. Right. He kind of makes a homemade mushroom soup and he uses, uh, this is his secret weapon. And I've, I've never forgotten it, but I've never done it. He puts Asiago cheese on top with the French fried onions mm. that he makes. So what do you think about that? I'll tell you what. I will try it. All right. I've got another one. I have I have one more. I haven't tried this one either, but I, I was intrigued. Fresh green beans, the homemade mushroom soup, and on top, either sliced onions with the panko breadcrumbs, or this is what I this is the one I want to do. Caramelized onions with Gruyere cheese, kind of a French oh. onion soup treatment on top of that green bean casserole. Can we just are, leave are the green me? beans? Well, let's leave the green beans out and just have like a nice little <laughs> potato gratin or something with that. That sounds way better. We'll, to me. we'll, I'm going to, I'm going to make this dish and I'm going to bring you some, some leftovers because it's probably like other Thanksgiving dishes better the next day. So. While we're on the subject of Thanksgiving, is it turkey dressing or turkey stuffing? Oh, George, I think people have had enough of us for today. We can leave that for, for a future oh, episode. Man, that's such a good one. In the meantime, check out our newsletters by subscribing at stlmag.com slash newsletters. And you can follow us on Instagram at St. Louis Mag. And as always, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. George? Best dishes, and see you next time.